Pope Lit Productions presents Robert E. Howard's Conan the Sumerian Barbarian, The Complete Weird Tales Omnibus, written by Robert E. Howard, edited and annotated by Finn J.D. John, narrated by Finn J.D. John. And now, Robert E. Howard's Conan the Sumerian Barbarian, The Complete Weird Tales Omnibus. Introduction the Origins of Conan When the first Conan of Samaria story appeared in the pages of Weird Tales magazine in December 1932, nothing quite like it had ever before appeared in print. Author Robert E. Howard had been writing stories broadly similar to it for half a decade, but it was with Conan and the Hyborian Age story world in which he was placed that Howard finally fully doped out the subgenre that would become known as sword and sorcery, of which Howard is today considered the founding father. Conan's origins date back to a literary experiment that Howard penned in 1926 titled The Shadow Kingdom, featuring a new character, Cull, Exile of Atlantis. The idea, Howard's great innovation, was, at its core, historical fiction set in a faux-historical era, about which most or all of the details are lost in the mists of time. That faux-historical period could contain anything Howard might like it to include. Evil races of sentient snake things, sorcerers, undead creatures, demons walking upon the earth, anything. In other words, Howard was creating a secular mythology. And as with any mythology, secular or no, there would be a hero, a Ulysses, a Theseus, an exceptional man of legend striding through that myth world, sword in hand, righting wrongs and slaying supernatural monsters, and along the way providing metaphorical insight onto his world and ours. Trouble was, as Howard would soon discover, he'd gone too far into the past. The Thurian Age, as Cull's milieu was named, had so little in common with the modern world that it might as well have been staged on another planet. No reader was going to feel a personal connection to it, or be tempted to indulge the fantasy that it was a real part of the world's history. Historical fiction draws much of its power from a sense of connection to the real world of long ago. That source of power was foreclosed to the Thurian Age. It was just too far distant in time. Nonetheless, the Shadow Kingdom was well received, but Weird Tales rejected several follow-up cull stories. At roughly the same time, Howard's Texas-style tall-tale liar humor stories about the prize-fighting sailor Steve Costigan were taking off like a rocket in Fight Stories magazine. So Howard dropped the Cull project after just a handful of attempts so that he could focus more energy on Costigan. At the same time, though, he was finding success with another historical fiction fusion innovation, the grim, savage English Puritan, Solomon Kane. Cain's world was the skull-strewn chaos of Europe and North Africa during the Thirty Years' War in the early 1600s. Little enough is known about specific events during that dark time that it was possible to take historical liberties with it as a story world so that it could accommodate dark magic, walking skeletons, vampires, magic staffs, and, of course, Nalonga the Witch Doctor. Howard quickly realized he was onto something with Solomon Cain. The first Solomon Kane story, Red Shadows, appeared in August 1928 in Weird Tales, and readers loved it. Here was a brooding, dark world of menace and witchcraft connected pseudo-genealogically to their own. It was easy for readers to take the ride, to suspend their disbelief, and envision Kane's adventures as part of the real world, a secret part. But 
Perhaps the connection to the real world was too close. The countries of 1630s Europe are well known, the causes of the conflict fully understood. There was only so much Howard could do in Solomon Kane's world, and the fact that he sent his hero into, quote, darkest Africa directly in the very first story suggests that he may have been feeling the weight of those constraints. Moreover, Solomon Kane is just a hard character to root for. Unlike Cull, he is, not to put too fine a point on it, really not a sane man. So it makes perfect sense that after the shadowy prehistoric world of Cull and the dark necromantic world of Solomon Kane, Howard would combine the two precursors to develop a world that was far enough into the distant past to be free of actual historical constraints, like Cull's, yet close enough to the present to still exist as shadows and legends in the world's mythologies. And so Howard created the Hyborian Age, an era some 12,000 years before the present, all archaeological traces of which have since been wiped out by a global cataclysm that hurled all of humanity back into Stone Age barbarism, leaving only vague hints in ancient myths and a few modern echoes in the names of nations and peoples, Britain, once Berthunia, Aquitaine, once Aquilonia, Stygia, Corinthia, Shem, Isgard, and to play the role of our avatar as we explore this shadowy, almost historical world, Howard gave us Conan the Sumerian. Conan the Stereotype Conan the Sumerian would, of course, go on to become one of the most widely known characters in 20th century literature, and one of the most misunderstood. Almost right from the start, Conan was typecast in almost exactly the same way that Edgar Rice Burroughs' iconic Jean C. Tarzan was typecast. That would be Tarzan, of course. It started in earnest with a review in the New York Times book review of Skullface and Others, a collection of Howard stories published in 1946 by Arkham House. The review was revealingly headlined Superman on a Psychotic Bender. It's important to point out that the comparison of Conan with comic books in general, and Superman in particular, was, in the late 1940s, a literary act of consummate disdain. For a full understanding of the contempt with which the literary establishment of that time viewed comic books and comic writers and comic artists, check out The Ten Cent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed America, by David Haidu, Picador, 2009. Here's what the review had to say. Quote, the collected works of Robert E. Howard range from the standard weird tales pattern, a monster unloosed and its final destruction or the destruction of the dabbler in the occult, to a kind of action story in costume set in a prehistoric world of Lemuria and Atlantis invented by the author, sniffs the reviewer, Hoffman Reynolds Hayes. Howard used a good deal of the Lovecraft cosmogony and demonology, but his own contribution was a sadistic conqueror who, when cracking heads did not solve his difficulties, had recourse to magic in the aid of Lovecraft's elder gods. The stories are written on a competent pulp level. Hayes wasn't the first to mischaracterize Howard's work in these terms, but his review definitely brought such claims to a new level of social prominence. His remarks also represent one of the oldest examples of the tendency of some H.P. Lovecraft aficionados to regard Howard as a sort of hack fan fictioneer aping Lovecraft's work. That charge is still occasionally leveled against Howard even today, usually when it appears it indicates that the reviewer either is not familiar with Howard's work or has encountered one of the pastiches by a different author and mistaken it for the real thing. 
Nonetheless, the characterization of Conan's stories as archetypal grunt fiction, meant for weaklings who want to fantasize about power, has endured, more or less, ever since. Moreover, that mischaracterization has been extrapolated to Howard himself, since it makes intuitive sense to most casual observers that a character as powerful and capable as Conan must obviously be the literary incarnation of his author's personal fantasies. In fact, Hayes' New York Times review didn't shrink from that very observation. Quote, A sensitive boy, he was apparently bullied by his schoolmates, the author writes, drawing from a sketchy, factually inaccurate biographical account penned after Howard's death by E. Hoffman Price, a fellow writer from a neighboring state whose acquaintance with Howard was neither close nor intimate. He carried a loaded revolver wherever he went and talked of non-existent enemies. Howard's heroes were consequently wish projections of himself. All of the frustrations of his own life were conquered in a dream world of magic and heroic carnage. The problem of evil is solved by an impossibly omnipotent hero. From this, the reviewer sweeps confidently, if somewhat ludicrously, to a blanket indictment of action pulp and comic books, blithely crowned with an amateur psychological diagnosis. Quote, Thus the hero literature of the pulps and the comics is symptomatic of a profound contradiction, he writes. On the one hand, it is testimony to insecurity and apprehension, and on the other, it is a degraded echo of the epic. But the ancient hero story was a glorification of significant elements in the culture that produced it. Mr. Howard's heroes project the immature fantasy of a split mind and logically pave the way to schizophrenia. Conan's fame and Howard's legacy would steadily grow in the post-war years in spite of reviews and comments like this, but the supercilious disapproval of the literary establishment would cast a long shadow nonetheless. In fact, some of Howard's biggest fans, among whom must be counted L. Sprague de Camp, though many modern Conan fans would rather not, felt a sort of compulsion to temper their complimentary remarks about his work for fear of being themselves judged for appreciating such low-brow trafe. And until a dozen years or so ago, being judged does seem to have been a danger for anyone taking Howard's stories seriously as works of literary or poetic merit. Barbarian Style Stylistically, Howard's pseudo-historical fiction works, after 1932 at least, are tightly paced and extraordinarily evocative. At their best, they are dark, misty, hypnotic experiences, like half-remembered dreams peppered with flashes of terse, evocative action that split them like flashes of lightning across a night sky. At their worst, they are still elementally powerful narrative experiences and very much worth reading. Throughout, the influence of Howard's training as a poet is plain and clear. By far the best description of Howard's primary storytelling talent comes from a later pulp writer, Michael Moorcock, in his biography of Howard, Two Gun Bob. Moorcock, who is not always uniformly complimentary of Howard, writes, quote, The ability to paint a complex scene with a few expert brushstrokes remains Howard's greatest talent, and such talent, of course, can't ever be taught. That last assertion is highly questionable, but L. Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter certainly had trouble matching Howard's work and the pastiches they cobbled together to flesh out their 12-volume set of Lancer Ace paperbacks in the late 60s. Barbarian Philosophy Philosophically, the spirit that undergirds Howard's work from the Conan era is distinctive and important as well. 
The late 1920s were a very difficult time, psychologically speaking, for a lot of people. It had been a decade since the underpinnings of Victorian and Edwardian civilization had been discredited and destroyed by the global bloodbath of 1914 to 1918. Following that social trauma, the Western world had staggered forward into a world grown suddenly cold, shorn of its faith in both religion and the modern state, and in the whole system of world governance that had developed out of the peace of Westphalia at the end of the Thirty Years' War, which transferred power from the church to the heads of states. Those heads of states had built their empires to include as many subject peoples as possible, caring little what their ethnic and cultural background was so long as they paid taxes. Kings and princes' loyalties lay with their fellow aristocrats, not fellow countrymen. Thus, the Emperor of Austria had plenty in common with the King of England, but any Austrian or Hungarian commoner might as well have been of a different species. And among those commoners, the important characteristic was status as an imperial subject, not being from a similar ethnic bloodstock. Then had come 1914, and the illusions of the Western world were burned away in a four-year-long storm of fire and steel, and in quest of victory all the nations of Europe had focused their resources on galvanizing ethnic patriotism of their people, getting them to think of themselves as members of an ethnically defined national family. Following that conflict, there was a new spirit abroad in the world, and not a benevolent one. That spirit was the transfer of personal loyalty away from the head of state and, to an increasing degree, away from religious faith and onto a semi-mythical construct of ethnic community, a spirit we know today as ethnic nationalism. Ethnic nationalism bound a people together with ties of blood and culture. And so the exploration of those ties in fiction was very much in vogue as the 1920s ripened into the 1930s. The literary air of the time was thick with fantasies of ancestral memory and reincarnation and mythical progenitor kings ruling over ethnically pure ancient kingdoms in which the reader could vicariously participate by dint of shared blood. Howard was in the thick of this literary genealogical mania, exploring with avid interest his own Irish-Celtic heritage. At its best, this new ethnic nationalism took the form of interest in forging a closer and more family-like community among members of one's national community, endowing it with things like libraries and theaters and universities and Chautauqua circuits. At its worst, of course, the new nationalism took the form of eugenic programs to purify national bloodstocks, extermination programs undertaken against, quote, internal enemies, and repression in the name of the, quote, greater good to expel or silence dissenting voices so they could not corrupt the young. And it took the form of states that recognized no moral authority higher than their own self-interest that is to say, the self-interest of the, quote, race they claimed to represent. Remember, race in the 1930s referred to ethnicity, not skin color. Thus, people spoke of the Nordic race, the Latin race, the Anglo-Saxon race, etc. All of this was taken to its logical extreme in 1939, when the most powerful country in the world, headed by a romantic ethnic nationalist whose conscience and humanity had been ablated away in the trenches of World War I, embarked on a campaign of world conquest and racial extermination. You can find elements of a romantic nationalism disturbingly similar to Hitler's philosophy in much of the pulp fiction of this era, and Howard's is no exception. Howard's vision, though, is actually darker and bleaker than Hitler's, albeit far more egalitarian. 
While Hitler and Mussolini sought to replace the old society's lodestars, the aristocracy and the church, with that vision of Ein Folk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer, and looked forward to a thousand years of their quote-unquote races dominating the world as its rightful rulers, Howard saw only a cycle of futility, with first one race and then another rising from apedom to build a civilization and then collapsing in decadence and decline and being overwhelmed and decimated by the next race, rising in its turn, then devolving back into Stone Age savagery, then recovering, then rising again, over and over until the sun burns out. No race is special. Today's dominant race will, 10,000 years hence, be beating drums and napping flint knives around the fire and trying not to be hunted to extinction by tomorrow's dominant race. It is a bleak vision. But then Robert E. Howard was a writer with a noticeable bleak side. A Brief Biography What follows here is a very brief biography of Robert E. Howard, given for purposes of putting the stories in this book into proper context. It is not intended to take the place of a real biography if it whets your appetite to know more about this fascinating and brilliant storyteller-poet. I recommend Mark Finn's biography, Blood and Thunder, as the best and most fair-minded work I've found. Finn, a native Texan like Howard, has a cultural understanding of his subject that is noticeably lacking in some of his other biographers, especially New Englander L. Sprague de Camp. Robert E. Howard was born in January 1906 in the town of Peaster, Texas, the son of a traveling country doctor named Isaac Howard. His mother, Hester Howard, had a tremendous lifelong influence over him, nurturing his interest in poetry and writing. By the time Howard was reaching his teenage years, his parents' relationship had broken down, and his mother was actively blocking him from developing his relationship with his father. Increasingly frail from the tuberculosis she'd contracted while caring for sick relatives when younger, Hester became both clinging and fiercely protective of Robert, who found it necessary to stay in the family home to take care of her as she grew sicker and sicker. The family moved to the town of Cross Plains, Texas, when Robert was 13 years old and settled in. Robert got to live in Cross Plains just long enough to sample its bucolic small-town tranquility for a few months before someone struck oil there. Cross Plains would never be the same. Its population soared to 10,000, its dirt streets became ruddy and unnavigable, bar fights and violent crime became rampant, and Robert developed an abiding hatred for the oil business. Robert had shown great literary promise since he was very young, and his mother had taken many pains to nurture and encourage his talent. In 1921, at age 15, he decided to do something about it, and he settled down with a stack of pulp magazines and launched a studied effort to break into them, analyzing each title for the type of writing it liked, working up his best efforts in that spirit, and sending out manuscripts. Rejection letters came back, some with hasty bits of advice that he could take into account in tailoring his next attempt. The next year, 1922, he went to the town of Brownwood to finish his senior year of high school. Hester went with him, leaving Isaac back home in Cross Plains. In Brownwood, for the first time, Robert met some kindred spirits, imaginative writer types like himself. Cross Plains, with its thousands of working stiffs and hundreds of small-town professionals, simply didn't have a literary scene, and it was a lonely place for Robert. Most of his school classmates thought he was just weird. It was in Brownwood that Robert's writing first saw publication in the high school newspaper. The next year, Robert graduated from high school and returned to Cross Plains. There he worked at various menial jobs for a while, still working on the magazine markets in his off time. 
He also became a physical fitness buff and an amateur boxer of no small renown. The magazine submissions still not having paid off, he returned to Brownwood in 1924 to enroll in college, taking a stenography course, apparently seeking a plan B that didn't involve jerking sodas or getting yelled at by construction foreman in case the writing thing never got off the ground. But in Thanksgiving week that year, one of his manuscripts finally got published, a short story about a Cro-Magnon caveman rescuing a cavewoman from a marauding Neanderthal. It was picked up in a new pulp, founded just a year before, called Weird Tales. The sale paid just $16, and he wouldn't see it until the following year, but he dropped out of college anyway, redoubling his literary efforts. Back home in Cross Plains, he did whatever work he could find while he kept plugging away at his literary career, and slowly at first, but with increasing momentum, it started to take off. He found poetry fairly easy to get placed in Weird Tales, but it didn't pay very well. After 1930, with more lucrative options available to him, he more or less stopped writing it. But its influence continued to suffuse his prose, as Moorcock alluded to in his remark about expert brushstrokes. When he was only 20 years old, Robert had his first cover story run in Weird Tales, a bleak but fascinating story titled Wolf's Head, a remarkable yarn set in a private African colony in the 1700s featuring a Portuguese slave trader, a werewolf, and a slave revolt. All of the characters in the story are horrible people except the werewolf. It remains a stunningly sophisticated work for a writer barely out of his teens. Howard didn't think so, though. When he saw the story in print, its perceived inadequacies demoralized him to the point that he gave up writing for a space and took a job as a soda jerk downtown and re-enrolled in stenography school. And it was at that time that Robert developed the idea for The Shadow Kingdom. The Shadow Kingdom took a while in gestation, though. Robert worked on it for at least a year, finally submitting it to Weird Tales in September 1927. They snapped it right up. Just six months later, Robert sent in another story he'd been working on, Red Shadows, the first Solomon Kane story. It was accepted as well. With these successes, combined with the rising popularity of the Steve Costigan stories, suddenly the torrent of rejection slips that had been pouring into Howard's mailbox was being tempered with a steady trickle of actual paychecks. Once again, Howard dropped out of stenography school, but this time for good. He wouldn't be needing that plan B now. And now, in 1930, three major things happened that led directly to the Hyborian Age and Conan. The first was Robert started getting serious about delving into his own Celtic heritage. At the same time, a new pulp title called Oriental Stories debuted. In this magazine, Robert was able to really stretch his wings and expand his skills with real historical fiction, stories of battle and occult mystery set in the Middle East and Far East hundreds of years ago. The third major event of 1930 happened in August, when Robert got in contact with H.P. Lovecraft, with whom he soon developed a long-distance pen-pal relationship that endured until his death. Through the correspondence with Lovecraft, Robert met Clark Ashton Smith, another regular Weird Tales contributor, and in later years the three of them would be known as the Three Musketeers of Weird Tales, and the central figures in the Lovecraft circle. Lovecraft dubbed him Two-Gun Bob in a nod to his Texas heritage and an acknowledgment of the ferocious firepower of his action writing. And the two of them engaged in a famous debate, via letters, on the relative merits of civilization and barbarism. 
Robert spent about a year playing with the stylistic and world-building innovations that Lovecraft had developed. Some of his writings during that time were published and became Exhibit A in the tired old case made with tiresome frequency by the ignorant that Howard was primarily a hack writer of Lovecraft pastiches. However, it is true that after that year, a little of Lovecraft's style nestled into Howard's work as a noticeable influence. It was another element that went into his work, arriving just in time for the Conan stories. For by 1932 or so, those stories were starting to gestate. The first stirrings of the Conan stories came in early 1932, when Robert was on a motor tour of the southern part of the state in his new Chevrolet. While near Fredericksburg, he was inspired by a view of an array of hills under a misty rain, and from the scene wrote a poem titled Samaria. Shortly after this, he started to develop the character Conan. Howard told several people that Conan, the character, sprang fully armed into his life and more or less stood there by his shoulder dictating stories. This account, given to people he didn't know very well, probably was intended to enhance the verisimilitude of the stories by introducing the suggestion of a ghostly Conan telling about his real life through Robert. In fact, as he told Clark Ashton Smith in a letter, the character started to develop in his mind after that trip to Fredericksburg. It took something over a half a year to develop. Once home from his trip, Howard started building out the world, and the pseudo-mythic Hyborian Age came to life. About this collection. This omnibus collection comprises the complete array of Robert E. Howard's Conan the Sumerian writings published during his life, or in the case of Red Nails, immediately thereafter. It does not include works that were left unfinished or were rejected for publication. Each story included in this collection starts out with a citation to the place in which it was originally published, and all the Conan stories are arranged chronologically according to when they were published. The goal is to make the experience of reading this collection as comparable as possible to that of a regular reader of Weird Tales magazine in the 1930s. The collection starts out with four non-Conan stories, which the editors believe are important for fully understanding from whence the Conan titles sprang and for fully appreciating the storytelling innovation they represent. The first is The Shadow Kingdom, which, as mentioned above, is the world's first sword and sorcery title on which Conan started work when he was just twenty years old. The second and third are the first two Solomon Cain stories, Red Shadows and Rattle of Bones, both of them written the following year. Red Shadows is included because it was the first Solomon Cain story, Rattle of Bones because it gives perhaps the best possible demonstration of Howard's particular talent for evocative writing. As discussed above, it was these two story worlds, the pseudo-mythical world of Cull and the pseudo-historical world of Cain, that Howard combined and seasoned with a judicious dash of Lovecraftian cosmicism to create the world that most Howard fans consider his pièce de résistance, the Hyborian Age. Therefore, the fourth and final introductory story, before we start on the actual Conan tales, is Howard's explanatory and exploratory essay, The Hyborian Age. Once the reader has had a taste of Cull, a taste of Solomon Cain, and a guided tour of the world Conan will tread beneath his sandaled feet for the subsequent 750 pages, he or she will be fully equipped to appreciate the darksome literary feast that follows, the chillingly evocative, lyrically poetic, grippingly dynamic storytelling of Robert E. Howard's Tales of Conan of Samaria. Enjoy! Finn J.D. John, June 1st, 2017 Corvallis, Oregon.